0: First time in Cannes.
1: Yeah, bonjour Caroline, uh, from hot and sunny Cannes. Yeah, first time in this.
0: You're listening to a guy named Alan Jope. Alan works for Unilever, a giant consumer goods company, and he oversees multi-billion dollar advertising budgets for brands such as Dove, PG Tips, Hellman's Mayonnaise, and so many more. Alan is in Cannes speaking with a reporter from Bloomberg News, and he's here to deliver a message.
1: The real mission that we're here on uh, is to land the point that business can be a force for good in the world. Uh, Business and our brands, we think, can take meaningful action to address some of the big issues that the world is facing.
0: I wanted to play you this clip because I think this is where a lot of people's heads go when they hear the word social enterprise. Large companies deciding to partake in the world in a more socially or environmentally responsible way. For-profit companies finding their social responsibility. Think Dove with body image or Bell Let's Talk days. And the list goes on. The thing is, these companies are also marketing the fact that they are participating in the world in this woke, more responsible way, with the hope that consumers will vote with their dollars and support them or their branded cause over a competing brand. And it works. A Forbes article from July 2019 reported that Nike's stock rose 2% in market value, which is nearly $3 billion, after Colin Kaepernick convinced the company to pull one of its sneakers because the shoe's Betsy Ross flag design was connected to an era of slavery. Corporate responsibility can be an effective agent for change, but it's usually connected with brand marketing. In this clip, Alan is warning companies about the perils of stating to be for a cause without taking concrete action to live the values that you've marketed.
1: And at a time when trust is breaking down in society, it's very important that any promises that our brands or other brands make are backed up by real action uh, that we're taking in the world and in the community.
0: It's not a bad point. People are paying attention and there's skepticism of these initiatives, and rightfully so. This isn't to say that all of this type of marketing is bad. Awareness of social or environmental issues, and consumers wanting to buy in meaningful ethical ways is ultimately a good thing. But this type of consumer, capitalist-based marketing really muddies the waters when it comes to understanding social enterprise. I would argue that this isn't social enterprise. But then that begs the question, what is? Welcome to SENCO's audio documentary, all about social enterprise in Central Ontario and beyond. I'm your host, Jenna Stavanato. So before we go any further, what is SENCO? S-E-N-C-O is the social enterprise network of Central Ontario.
2: Thanks for coming. Woo! It's very exciting. Um, So welcome. For those of you uh, that I haven't met, my name is Ellie Green. I'm the program manager for SENCO. SENCO stands for the Social Enterprise Network of Central Ontario, and it's an initiative of Georgian College, housed at the Centre for Changemaking and Social Innovation. So our goals today are to bring everybody together across the region, and so people can get inspired. We also hope that everyone here might find a new way to engage or support social enterprise.
0: CENCO exists to support the development of the social enterprise sector by engaging with organizations and passionate individuals that are doing incredible work. As for me, I've recently completed my business degree with a focus in marketing and social enterprise, and I've worked with the Center for Changemaking and Social Innovation at Georgian College, which is where CENCO is based. Beside me in the studio is our producer, Angela Shackle. Hi. And while we're doing team
3: intros, we should totally say that Brayden Labonte is just outside the studio door. He's out there waving, smiling. Okay, great. Levels are still good.
0: Okay, so that's the intros done. Next, I guess it'd be nice to talk a bit about what we'll hear. So as
3: you might assume, we're going to be hearing a lot about social enterprise, which to be honest, I didn't know that much about before we started this project. Right. And you may not be alone in that.
1: I think the biggest challenge that we face is clearly defining and articulating what social enterprise means, because I think it means so many different things to so many different people depending on the lens that you're looking through as well.
4: When I'm with other people talking about social enterprises, it's a little confusing. There's always Mm. uh, questions and a lot of discussion about what exactly is a social enterprise.
1: I'm kind of looking forward to the day when people stop trying to create one way of saying what a social enterprise is because it really is you ask a hundred different people you get a hundred different answers
0: so we got a lot of different answers to what the definition of social enterprise is and i think it's because the sector is still pretty new
3: yeah but in some ways the ideas and approaches have been around for a really long time it's just that people weren't using the term social enterprise I think people are cautious about pinning down a definition because they don't want to limit the many forms or models a social enterprise can take.
0: But it's still helpful to have an idea of what social enterprise is and also what it isn't. So let's start with the most general of definitions. Hello, Wikipedia.
5: A social enterprise is a cause-driven business. It can be a non-profit, for-profit, co-op or charity whose primary reason for being is to improve social objectives and serve the common good.
0: Sometimes social enterprises operate within larger organizations, or they are the whole business, but either way they'll create revenue through the sale of a good or service.
3: Yeah. So another way to look at it is that social enterprises are not there to generate money for shareholders with some do-good stuff on the side. They need to invest the majority of their profits towards their stated causes. Social value has to be built into the foundation of their social
0: enterprise. Exactly, so to summarize, the definition can get a little long-winded and unwieldy, and the rise of wokewashing and social marketing has made things even more complicated.
3: Yeah, that's why I feel like we were so lucky to be able to talk with so many smart people for this project. They really were able to help us arrive at a more nuanced understanding of what's important when considering social enterprise.
6: I think about a third of my dissertation, maybe a quarter, has to do with defining social enterprise because there's a lot of discussion out of there. There's a lot of controversy about, okay, what is and what isn't. And to me, I ended up with a definition that basically, uh, what happens with the money?
0: I love this idea because it basically just says, run your business as you want to, but if you want to be called a social enterprise, show me the money. You have to be transparent with your books and show that you're investing the majority of your revenues back towards your cause. Show me the money. Money. (laughs) It's so obvious what happens with the money. (laughs) The person
3: who finally got us to our definition was Cuba Gooding Jr. Just joking, it was actually a person named Mary Ferguson.
6: I'm Mary Ferguson and uh, I've been working in social enterprise probably since the 90s.
0: Around 20 years ago, Mary started working at the Canadian Women's Foundation implementing social enterprise development. And after that, with the Toronto Enterprise Fund, consulting with them as they began to move into social enterprise. About 10 years ago, Mary was at the Social Enterprise World Conference in Calgary and she noticed something strange.
6: I was living here in rural. I saw the program, and I saw that there was no rural component at all. So then when we uh, came back from that conference, uh, Kathy Lang, who you probably will be interviewing as well.
7: Um, My name is Kathy Lang, and I'm a consultant uh, working with social economy organizations. Uh,
6: She and I thought, well, we should probably be doing something in, in rural as well.
7: And Mary likely told you this, because we were at conferences where we recognized that a lot of people, even if they're only an hour out of Toronto, were not getting access to the kinds of training and education on social enterprise. And so they weren't showing up at these conferences and their stories weren't being told. And we didn't think that was okay. And so we started to look at rural regions where we could go and um, bring some information and do some coaching.
6: There were a lot of things that were just not uh, connecting in rural. So if I do a little sideways tour, uh, six years ago, I was really interested in rural social enterprises. Uh, So I went back to school and started my PhD on rural social enterprise.
3: Mary and Kathy have devoted a substantial portion of their professional lives to understanding and building social enterprise development in rural regions. Their research has helped to inform our research, and we'll be hearing from them both periodically throughout this series.
0: As you drive through communities in rural Ontario, you'll see some amazing old buildings, mostly constructed around the turn of the last century in what is called a Renaissance Revival style. The Main Street will probably look something like this. Flat two or three-story buildings clumped together with large main floor windows, a door in the center, and fancy brickwork highlighting the windows and edges of the facade. A little ways off the Main Street, you may find old churches, libraries, or government buildings.
6: Sound right. Equipment right. Hi, right.
4: Yes, I'm Lee Bray. Nice to meet you. And this is Colleen. Hi. Nice oh, to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Let's go up the stairs because yeah. then you'll get the feeling of what it's like to be up on the stage, which is kind of fun. I'm interested
3: to see where we are when we come back up there. <laughs> I feel yeah. like I've been turned around a bit.
0: Yes. That's Lee Graves, chair of the Harmony Center, and Colleen Seaman Trask, vice chair, taking our producer Brayden on a tour of their building in Owen Sound.
4: Uh, so Watch your step. You can see the stage has been set up. For choral music.
0: The Harmony Centre is one of those old churches that were attached to old school houses in Ontario's rural past. The building itself is massive and gorgeous with hand carved oak benches and banisters, stained glass windows, rooms with very intense pink and green colored carpets and beautiful original toile wallpaper at the entrance.
4: I think it's uh, really important for us to remember the capacity that is held within these buildings. And it gets lost because, um, well, new and shiny is is exciting. And sometimes it takes a bit of imagination to figure out how you're going to repurpose things. But
0: we are sitting here on 27,000 square feet of usable space. The main space where church was held is now a performance hall. Next to the hall, there's another huge room with a stage against one wall an open space in the middle, and about 16 sets of huge oak doors surrounding the room and up on a mezzanine level above. It's a strange looking layout. I don't
1: think I've seen anything like it, just with uh, the multitude of
8: doors around it.
4: Apparently it's a particular style called an Akron Auditorium. It came out of Akron, Ohio, and quite a number of churches used it because uh, back in the heyday when, you know, going to church was the thing to do on a Sunday and this place would have been filled with uh, maybe up to 1,000 people if you had the, the parents and the children. Um, lots was happening on this side while the adults were over in the uh, sanctuary. It's, uh, it's a happy spot. People come into the building and they say, oh, there's, there's happy energy in here. And I think it's because it's old, of course, and there's beautiful woodwork. And you can see the details and the care that people put into buildings that, that they built in, you know, 150 years ago. So there's that. It's a little bit time-worn. We're not fancy, but it's good and solid and very serviceable. Mm -hmm. And people generally feel pretty comfortable here.
0: Today, behind the doors of the old auditorium, the small classrooms are rented out as co-working spaces to members of the community. After visiting the main spaces, Lee and Colleen guided us down into the belly of the building.
2: So, Osher is located on the lower level of the Harmony Center. And O'Share is the soup kitchen here in Owen Sound. So this big space is used to feed between 80 to 100 people every night um, here in Owen Sound. And they're just welcome to come and eat and enjoy fellowship together. We're a no question place. If you are hungry and you want to eat, this is where you come. So, it will get very busy in the
0: next half hour. The Owen Sound Hunger and Relief Effort has been operating a soup kitchen in the Harmony Center since the building was acquired.
2: Our volunteers who are starting to arrive, so. Hi, Hi how are you? Good. Good. Hi. So last year over 21,000 meals were served here for people in our community. The dishwasher's running. Um, so for Oshare, the, Being part of the Harmony Center has just been such a great experience for us because um, we're able to share resources with others in the building. Um, It was our place to start up in and it gave us our foundation and has just been a great place for us to continue to be part of.
0: You may be thinking at this point that this place doesn't sound like a social enterprise. And by their own admission, primarily it isn't. Harmony Center is a charity, but they do have a social enterprise component to their charity.
3: Yeah. They charge those who can afford to rent spaces within the building. Brayden thought it looked so cool that somebody should
0: shoot a movie in there. He was very excited by the tour.
3: They totally should film a movie there. The place was amazing. It looked like a Kubrick film. They had these massive oak doors. The ceilings were super high. They had these plaster carvings in the wall called like Miller Miller Work, I think it was called. It looked amazing.
4: business aspect of what happens here supports our charitable purposes but um, our purpose is not to make money, it's to uh, perform this social good and we're able to do that because we have a business component. This building acts as a community center for various um, things. Uh, basically our mission is to provide this building so that our community can share, create, educate, and perform.
0: Over the past 150 years, since Canadian census data has been collected, the population has been steadily moving away from rural areas and towards urban centres. And although this exodus has begun to slow and in some cases reverse, the shift has left many of these communities to adapt to the changing demographics. Reinvesting time and energy into old, underused buildings is one way for small municipalities to leverage assets that they have at their disposal and work to rethink the new community. Another way is reconsidering how new buildings can be used.
1: So, our facility in Orillia, which is the newest facility that we have, it's about six years old, is basically a three-storey office building.
0: In Orillia and Barrie, Ontario, there are multi-tenant buildings just outside of the downtown core, spearheaded by this guy.
1: James Thompson, President and CEO of the New Path Foundation.
0: The New Path Foundation is a charity that offers fully funded child and youth mental health services in Simcoe County. The work that they do is really important for the community, but we're focusing on their social enterprise connection.
3: Yeah, we're going to be talking about these two unassuming buildings, both called the common roof and both also run by James Thompson.
0: When you pull up, you see one of those large strip mall style signs indicating the unit numbers and the business tenants within the building. The structure itself is one of those blocky looking office buildings.
1: Uh, We have a centralized reception, so when you come in, there's a large um, waiting room, there's a front desk reception area, and that's staffed by a receptionist who is a shared um, staff between all the organizations in the building.
3: So this is another example of a social enterprise that, before we started working on this project, I never would have thought of, and I think we should take a few minutes to explain how
0: it works. Right. So about half the names of the signs are charities or public services. There's New Path Foundation, Children's Treatment Network, the District Health Unit, and a bunch more. These organizations are deemed partners under the common roof, and they get a grant in the form of a rent subsidy. Alongside the charities and not-for-profits in the building, they also have for-profit and not-for-profit businesses that are deemed tenants and pay market rates for their spaces.
1: So there's about between, I think there's 13 overall um, here in in Aurelia between partners and tenants. So partners, again, are locked in 10 years. They get the unrestricted sustainability grant. Tenants are market rates, so they help subsidize to an extent some of the funds that we are generating to pay back to our partners.
0: At first it might not sound like a social enterprise, which is probably why it also took James a bit of time to realize what they were doing with the building.
1: And being that we weren't a service entity, we didn't have clients that we were servicing, our clients were really the organizations. And it was when we made that connection, and then we started to have discussions on how through our model, we could support those organizations better. That's when you saw the light bulbs go off around the table and, and, and the realization, oh my goodness, We are kind of a social enterprise, and this is something that we should be proud of because as a not-for-profit entity, we are intrinsically, and hopefully so, acting in the best interest of the community.
0: Rethinking buildings, how they can be used or how their organization can be reimagined, is a crucial step towards maintaining innovative and engaging municipalities, townships, and communities. But in the larger regions of central Ontario, empty buildings aren't the only issue. With low interest rates, rising home prices have also driven up rental markets. And despite unemployment rates being at a near record low, the wages earned in this seemingly booming economy have remained stagnant or declined relative to inflation since the 2008 financial collapse. Although these factors have certainly exacerbated the housing crisis across cities and towns in Canada, the root of the problem can be traced back even further to 1993, When the federal government froze funding to public housing and reduced the social funds made available to provinces. When the onus for public housing was transferred to the provinces in 1994, only Quebec and British Columbia developed provincial policies. All the other provinces and territories chose to transfer the public housing authority to municipalities. This seems to
3: have been a huge mistake. And according to the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness, it was. Their report states the 1993 decision resulted in a drastic reduction in the amount of affordable housing available and can be linked very
0: directly to an increase in homelessness across the country. In 2017, the federal government announced a plan called the National Housing Strategy, and it pledged to spend $40 billion over the next 10 years to address the problem of inadequate housing and homelessness. But the results of this plan are still to be seen. In the meantime... Since 1994, municipalities, when they have attempted to deal with the issue, have relied on a combination of charity, not-for-profits, and petitions for the allocation of provincial funding to help solve the problem of homelessness within their own communities. In the fall of last year, we visited a closed-down motel in Barrie, Ontario. At the time, there were tall skids of lumber piled up near the entrance, and the former motel rooms have been completely gutted back to the studs.
1: Put in this new beam and overhang, and then we're about to pour this herb on uh, Thursday morning, I believe.
0: Barrie is a city with a population over 141,000. It's located about an hour outside of Toronto on the west shore of Lake Simcoe. And as of June 2019, it's the fourth most expensive rental market in Canada. It's not just bad for renters. In an article published by TVO, the affordability threshold for Barrie, which is the recommended maximum house price for a person earning the average local income is $428,500. The average house in Barrie costs $604,000, nearly $200,000 more than the affordability threshold. In 2015, the city set a goal to build 840 affordable housing units by 2024. The conversion of the old motel was presented as a cost-effective way of reaching that goal, but they needed someone to build it.
5: Uh, Yeah, I'm uh, Timothy Kent. Okay, hi, I'm Brandon Day. And we are uh, in our shop at Community Builders out in Midhurst, Ontario.
1: Yeah, we are a social enterprise construction company, and uh, we try to concern ourselves with affordable housing, as well as uh, meaningful, purposeful employment and training.
0: Community Builders is a social enterprise that operates as a wing of a registered charity called Redwood Park Communities, and like other charities we've heard from, they were also exploring ways to fortify their funding base.
5: We always operated from a, a social enterprise mindset. Like we didn't, we never operated ever as, as a regular mindset of sort of an old school charity, would think, where they're relying on government funding or relying on donations or whatever. We always kind of looked at it right from the very beginning. How can we make this sustainable? And in order to do that, we need to make use of some of the regular market tools that are out there. Um, and we just kind of thought, hey, what if we sort of, like, created or formalized, I guess, this, this idea of a construction company that could do some of these builds that we were working on for the affordable housing, but also do things in the community at a market rate that, that we could then pour some of those funds back into more affordable housing.
0: By building houses at market rates and diverting the access funds back towards the charity projects, they're able to sustainably pursue their charitable goals of creating more affordable housing units. But eventually they also discovered a ripple effect of working within the communities they were servicing. This is actually another common thread in social enterprises. Additional social good happens, sometimes unexpectedly, through the work.
5: And as we went along and some of the individuals that we started to work with and hire uh, that, that had barriers to employment, and and it wasn't necessarily on purpose at the beginning. We realized what a great opportunity to start training and working with individuals that have barriers to employment and training them up in the construction trades and either helping them continue to work along with us or get a job somewhere else that's well-paying and help them um, work themselves, I guess, in a way. Out of, out of their own poverty or their own inability to be able to get a job somewhere and, and be work ready and ready to go. And, and so we started pouring our time and effort into deliberately seeking out um, individuals that uh, had barriers to getting a job somewhere and hiring them and training them and working alongside them.
0: Okay, I feel like we should pause here for a second and get into some detail about affordable housing and homelessness because it merits a little time. Shelter is a basic human need. We can't do work on poverty reduction without also doing work on housing. There are many versions of solutions to deal with the crisis of homelessness. Even though Community Builders supports people with barriers to employment find a way back into the workforce, they are firmly in favor of a housing-first model of addressing homelessness. Housing-first is exactly what it sounds like, providing homes as an essential starting point. The approach was first popularized in New York City in the 1990s. It centers on quickly moving people experiencing homelessness into independent and permanent housing and then providing additional supports and services as needed. It's an important distinction because this approach doesn't believe access to housing should be contingent upon readiness or on compliance, such as employment or sobriety, which the vast number of models operating Canada do. Instead, the model understands that the root of these problems aren't personal, but systemic.
5: So many of the families we recognized that we were working with didn't have those support networks. They were, um, you know, they, they either didn't have family at all because they had lost them somehow, and a lot of them came out of trauma and, and tragedy, uh, which built another whole, you know, level of mental health issues and everything on top of that.
0: Housing First has slowly been gaining traction over the past few decades, and the reason why isn't only a compassionate one. This is something that social enterprises like community builders understand. By housing people and addressing the root causes of homelessness, by providing access to counseling and community, the Housing First model is also the economically responsible choice
5: at the end of the day if you've if if you have a social impact in our case where we've provided somebody with some affordable housing they've got some job training they're making some good money they're now paying taxes they're spending their money in the economy they're not in jail they're not making frequent trips to the hospital they're not having uh, drug overdose issues they're not having all these things it's saving the government millions and millions of dollars Mm -hmm. we need to start thinking differently about uh, How do we do more of that? Because that's more money in everybody's pocket.
0: As well as measurable differences, like lightening the load on police forces, hospitals and drug clinics, Housing First can also have an impact on other things that are harder to measure. Social enterprise is the holistic model, and when it works well, the social gains are also holistic for everyone involved.
1: Yeah, and that's the hot topic right Mm -hmm. now too, like how are you measuring your impact? Mm -hmm. And, uh, Sometimes that's difficult, you know. uh, We have a friend who works um, at the furniture bank and he said he gives dignity to people every day. How do you measure that? And uh, so that always stuck with me.
0: This idea of valuing people's dignity every day is likely also a common theme among authentic social enterprises. In part two, we'll hear from people at the furniture bank and meet an academic who is trying to find metrics to measure these less direct benefits of social enterprise work. So, so far we've only been talking about organizations making social change within their communities, but we should say that a lot of the social enterprises we met with for this audio doc were also making very conscious choices to consider their environmental impact as well. And some people include environmental and cultural impact within
3: the idea of social change. But in all cases, the thing that really stood out was how they were trying to make an honest effort to build on a holistic model for social good. Meaning not only what impact are you hoping to achieve, but how are you hoping to achieve that impact?
0: Yeah, like, what are the social byproducts associated with your main goal? What are your environmental costs? How are you paying people? Where are you sourcing things from? How are the labor and environmental practices of your distributors? It's an ongoing process for any social enterprise. Asking how we can maximize our social or environmental impact, while also considering all of these other factors, can seem daunting. Melinda Zaitarek from the 4th Pig up in Muskoka, Ontario has not shied away from this challenge.
8: My name is Melinda Zaitarek and I'm a founder, worker, owner, and the general manager of 4th Pig Green and Natural Construction.
0: So what is the 4th Pig?
8: 4th Pig Green Natural Construction is a worker co-op that specializes in natural, environmentally friendly and healthy construction and has a mission to uh, transform the way that uh, we relate to the um, built environment to improve that relationship and make it a more sustainable relationship uh, and to create good safe jobs.
0: The 4th Pig is vocal about the importance of providing employees with living wages. The concept of a living wage sounds quite simple, and is defined as the minimum income necessary for a worker to meet their basic needs. One of the issues is that minimum wage standards are set by the province, but the province has many different places to live.
3: If you want to live in Toronto, it would be nearly $22 an hour, and in Simcoe County, it's around $18 an hour. The provincial minimum wage in Ontario is currently $14 an hour, which is below the living wage by at least $1.50 even in the most affordable regions of the province. The other thing that complicates these measurements is the fracturing of the workforce into what's commonly called the gig economy, where the idea of permanent employees is being phased out in favor of contract workers, who have less ability to collectively advocate for their rights.
0: Maybe we're getting a little off track. It's true. We should get back on track. The main thing is pay your employees a living wage, or aggressively pursue paying a living wage as an urgent goal. There definitely will be organizations, especially as they're starting out, that won't be able to do this anytime soon, but could prioritize it as a goal.
3: Yeah, this is part of what we were saying about a holistic view. Paying their workers properly is a byproduct of responsibility. The main goal of the fourth pig is to shift building standards in Canada to a greener, more progressive form of construction. And there's a good reason for this.
8: The housing sector is, by most estimates, um, well over 40% of our climate change uh, impact, uh, the built environment in general. So not just houses, but all built, the construction sector, the built environment.
0: To mitigate this impact, the fourth pig focuses their attention on the need to build differently with more environmentally responsible materials, as well as educating other builders about these new practices.
8: If we are going to do anything to mitigate climate change, the built environment has to be a top priority of that. That's one of the key ways to to address
0: climate change. And to address it properly, it's also going to take some fundamental shifts in the way we think about sustainability and efficiency taking into account not only the design of the house, but also the history of the materials that go into it. If you use
8: materials that have conventional materials that have a lot of upfront um, emissions, like rigid foam boards, blue boards, pink boards, things that are made out of polystyrene, other um, plastics-based, petroleum-based products, people use those to achieve higher levels of energy efficiency because they want to have less environmental impact. They want to use less energy in their home. But unfortunately, they, the reality is those materials have more negative impact on the environment and on our climate um, before you even put them inside your house that, that you will ever recover with the improvements to your home from throughout, you know, 50, 30, 50 years of, of operating your house. Um, so so that's a big shifting of way, the way people think that we're trying to stop people from energy efficiency is important. It's vital, but we can't chase it exclusively. We have to look at the path that we take to get there is just as important as getting there. And if we take the wrong path to get there, we're not actually achieving
0: our goal. So that's one way to reduce your environmental impact. The other way has actually already started. It just needs to be tinkered with a bit.
8: The building code is a fantastic way of doing it. The building code has mandated energy efficiency um, standards, and the building code actually does have, as one of its objectives, is to mitigate climate change and reduce greenhouse gases. We add, that is written down as the fun, one of the fundamental purposes of uh, objectives of of the building code. So the problem is the building code doesn't actually do that um, as the way it is written now. But there's nothing to say that we couldn't just add. Um, uh, add a a piece to the code, which happens all the time that says, this is the sheet where you measure the carbon that was emitted to build your house. And it would be very easy to, and have colleagues that are working on this to make a a easy form that people builders could fill out and to help identify fundamentally how much carbon they emitted into the atmosphere with materials they chose to build the house with and have to start meeting certain targets or have to sort of meet certain, um, Min- try to minimize what that number is and to tell people if you want to build a home in Muskoka, it has to make you have to make sure that you know you're not putting more than this much this number of, of tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere.
0: The fourth pig operates as a workers' co-op. In this type of co-op, the employees are the members and the owners of the enterprise. Cooperatives are democratically controlled businesses with the governing principle, one member, one vote. Any surplus revenue generated by a co-op is owned by the member owners, who can decide how to distribute the profits at the annual general meeting. If they decide to reinvest towards the social goals of the co-op, this model overlaps closely with what we now know as social enterprise. This is Kathy Lang again from the top of the show.
7: Um, Co-ops are ultimately about people taking charge of their own economy and and providing themselves with services. And the services can run anywhere from credit, so you have large credit unions, small credit unions, to housing, cooperative housing, uh, which is a mixed kind of income housing. Uh, where you have security of tenure to daycare and nursery co-ops and, and a lot more food and local food-based and organic food co-op, co-ops these days as well. So they run the gamut of sectors, uh, but they're generally um, initiated by and owned and
0: directed by members. In a lot of cases, co-ops are almost by default a social enterprise. They are citizens recognizing gaps in their social environment, and working in an open and cooperative way to fill them.
7: And um, those gaps could be, as I say, in housing and insurance for farmers and so on. Wherever there wasn't um, a huge profit motive, then sometimes those needs and services were not being developed and addressed. So cooperatives were a way of people saying, we'd like to take control of this and, and, and meet our own
0: needs. Taking control and meeting needs. It seems to be a common theme among the social enterprises we've heard from in this first episode. Whether charity, nonprofit, for-profit business, or co-op, organizations are succeeding at finding new ways to address gaps in our current social structure and using a social enterprise model to fund those gaps. In part two, we'll continue to hear from social enterprise innovators in the central Ontario region.
8: So, the Bhagatawad Alliance was formed um, by the fishers here in Nashingaming because they were seeing a lot of changes on the water and they wanted to be able to do something more proactively about it.
3: When you look at the fact that we have hungry people everywhere in our country, there is an access issue, obviously, because we throw away 50% of the food that's produced.
0: We'll hear from students learning about the social enterprise sector for the first time, this was originally going to be an experiential marketing co-op, but which I
2: thought was just about marketing. However, I had absolutely no idea how that CCSI and Zenko was going to absolutely change my life, both
0: professionally and emotionally as a person. And we'll hear how difficult it can be to start a successful social enterprise. And
7: it's it's going to be hard. It's, it's going to be hard. It's not going to be... Um, a, a cakewalk. So not every person who has a great idea um, has the great marketing potential or even the financial skill. Not everyone who has the financial skill and the, the desire to do an enterprise has the great business idea. Um, and, and then of course there are some who just get to a point and it's just too hard.
0: We'll also try to figure out if it's possible to quantifiably measure things like dignity, and have a discussion about the potential role of government in social enterprise. That's all for part one. This project was written and produced by Angela Shackle and Brayden Labonte of Accounts and Records, with script editing assistance from me, your host, Jenna Stevanato, and the SENCO team at Georgian College, Ross McIntyre and Jake Culture. This documentary was initiated by CENCO at Georgian College's Center for Changemaking and Social Innovation. Under the leadership of Ellie Green, CENCO program manager, and Susie Addison-Tour, director of the Center for Changemaking and Social Innovation at Georgian College. The music you heard is by Luca. Watch you for part two!